Well, he mentions that sometimes life doesn't seem fair. Some horrible people get to live long lives. Some nice people have short, tough lives. Let's be more specific than that, you know, horrible or decent. Let's, let, let, let's use terms which highlight it more clearly. For us, we see unrepentant sinners living long, prosperous lives. And we sometimes see God's people having short, hard lives. So today I just want to encourage you. I want to show you that in the end all will be well for God's people. And when you see, when you see injustices in this world or if you experience injustice yourself, that's the time when you should call to mind that principle, all will be well. So first, I want to think about some of the injustices that this man, this author, Kohelet, some of the injustices that he's seen. Well, there's injustice everywhere. There's, it's everywhere. And a lot of it is, is even seen by the people of this world. It's as if God has programmed all human beings. So they have, they have this sense of discomfort whenever they see injustice. It doesn't sit right, does it? It feels, it feels uncomfortable. It's as if it goes against nature itself. I think perhaps a better explanation for that is that we have something of the justice of God inside us. And, and that's why there's this unease felt when justice isn't done. Well, let's think about some more examples now. There's, we see injustice in the highest levels of society, of course. There's no shortage of examples of rulers all the way through history who have acted unjustly. We have kings Kings have had people put to death for protesting against unfair laws. We've had uh, presidents who've made themselves rich by robbing their own people. Prime ministers, even this one, who, uh, who enact laws which are in direct opposition to the laws of God. Many, many Christians, not us, really, but many Christians in history have been called by God to suffer under wicked rulers. God puts the wicked rulers in place. He brings the next generation of Christians in. And he gives them, Christians, the task of living as lights in their very, very dark world. The rulers themselves, well, the scriptures tell us to pray for them. The scriptures tell us to pray for the rulers, even the bad ones. I said to you the other week that uh, God has raised up far more bad rulers in history than good ones. The good ones are very rare. But we are to pray for them, especially the bad ones. Especially them. We're told to obey them as much as possible. 
the Apostle Paul was expected to obey Nero. Even though Nero had Christians, you know, burnt alive and things. As far as it was possible, the Christians were to obey. Well, I think that means generally, generally now, um, joining in revolutions, trying to topple governments, that's not our business. That, that, that's not really what Christians should be doing. Now, if we pray for our rulers, but God in his wisdom decides to prolong their unjust reign, then it can leave a bitter taste in our mouths. It's not, it's not nice. We, it concerns us. We have to keep telling ourselves that God's purpose is being worked out through those rulers, even the wicked ones. And God will sort them out. In the last day, God will sort them out and they will pay for every evil thing they've done. Now, sin uh, extends throughout society. You know, um, you'll, you'll get people like maybe, you know, maybe socialists might say that the main problem is the rich, the capitalists. Well, yes, the problems with the capitalists, but the problems with the socialists as well, because sin extends through every uh, strata of society. It's everywhere. Um, we, we have people, uh, we see injustice in court. You have guilty men uh, smiling as the Sefri, smiling, mocking the court, mocking the idea of justice by, by just walking out of court with a grin on the face, knowing he got, got away with it again. I, I, I'm reading a book at the moment about, uh, it's a barrister, and he's writing about the justice system, you know, what's good and what's bad about it, and he, where I'm up to at the moment, he's speaking about a guy in the UK who was accused of um, a serious sexual assault, and he was found guilty, and he put him in jail. And when it comes to his parole, he, he, they said, you know, you need, to, you need to face your crime. And he said, no, I didn't do it. Well, you're not eligible for parole then. Okay, I am not, I'm not giving in. I am not confessing to this rape. They kept him in way, way longer than he should have been kept in according to you know, the, the, the rules for that type of crime. 17 years he chose to stay in jail rather than just say, okay, it was me, can I get out now? He chose to do that 17 years, wrongfully accused, found guilty of rape, and of course, uh, it destroys his life, the, the, the family around, and his circle of friends, career, everything's gone. And then when DNA, um, the advancements in DNA uh, evidence, they found, and they found that the, I don't know, uh, artifacts of something other than on the girl's clothes were from another man altogether. And so he was left free in 2013. That's just one of many, though, you know. Uh, verse 6 in our reading says uh, the, 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 the delay, the delay in evil people being sentenced uh, causes them to sin even more. 
Now, you might think that delay is to do with the courts or something, something to do with the legal system. I think it's to do with God. I think it means that when people see that they sin and God doesn't strike them down, you know, they're thinking, well, even if there is a judgment, I could have 60 years ahead of me here and do whatever I want. And yet, if there's a judgment, well, I'll face the music. So because they're not immediately struck down, it emboldens them to sin. In verse 14, we see another angle. It's described that uh, it says people, it says things can be upside down. It says <laughs> wicked people are outwardly blessed. It's the wrong way round. The wicked people are often blessed, materially anyway. It's as if blessings that really should go to the believer are taken and given to them instead. And so it can be, it can be difficult for the Christian to understand why. They might be going through so many trials in life and an unrepentant sinner seems to just sail through life, have it all, everything just goes well for them. There's also injustice in the church, not just with rulers, not just with the population as a whole, but there's injustice in the church as well. There's, there's, there's sinful people pretending for years to be Christians and they can do terrible damage and they can get away with it, at least in this life. They can get away with it. You can see in verse 10 here, the writer Cohelus makes an observation. That these people, while they're alive, you can see them taking part in worship. They take part in worship. And so, in, in today's setup, it's like, you know, it's people who are attending a church, maybe involved in church life even. And very often they act wickedly, and their actions can cause congregations to disintegrate. And you watch and, and nothing happens to them. Nothing happens to them. They enjoy their retirement and nothing happens. We even see, well in this translation, it, it translates it like this in verse 10. It says, the people are praised for their respectability. In this life they're praised. Imagine some awful degenerate like bishop in the Church of England or something. And... You know, with all this stuff they're coming out with. And the religious folk around this guy, they well they adore him. They marvel at his holiness. But for people like us, well they, they don't like us, they pour scorn on Bible believing Christians when we stand up for the truth. It's no wonder Cohelet has all these negative thoughts, if you like. Like in verse 15, he says, What's the point? He says, verse 15, I may as well just enjoy life. But when he's thinking more clearly, he says some really profound things and we're going to consider some of them. We're going to move on to our second point, which is about the wicked dying. He says, I saw, I saw the wicked buried. Cohelet has been watching wicked people throughout their lives 
And then he sees the funerals of some of those people. Now on the one hand, you could say, Kohelet's thinking to himself, this is wrong for them to have a respectable burial. They were horrible. Why do they get this respectable burial? That itself can be seen as an injustice. You think about, uh, you think about guys who die on the battlefield. Now I know, I know most people in the army are not Christians. I know that, but you know, they they usually or they often have uh, a proper sort of motive for fighting. You know, there's some cause, some principle of the fighting for, and yet. We see, uh, throughout history especially more than today, we see millions of them dying on the battlefield and having to be left there. They die, they're left in the open, and then the birds of prey come, and the foxes come, and soon there's, there's very little left except bones. They don't get a decent burial. Surely they deserve a burial. Now in the scriptures, I'm saying this because in the scriptures, not having a decent burial was something of a curse, you see. <clears throat> so maybe Kohelet's thinking, why are they getting this respectable send-off? It's not right. They spent their lives in wickedness. It's not right. Now you might argue that, well, okay, we are in a civilised society and making sure everyone gets a respectful burial is just part of a civilised society. I, I agree. But at the same time, it can't be nice for victims of crime when they see the people who've caused them so much grief and pain being honoured, highly honoured, in elaborate funeral processions. It must kill them. It reminded me, you know, of the funerals of some of these gangsters. You think about the Cray twins. You think about uh, the people who travelled from all over the world all over the world to go to the funerals of these, 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 these gangsters. You had crowds lining the streets, a grand funeral procession, you'd think it was the royal family. Thousands of people, tens of thousands, all dressed in black. Almost none of them knew, knew the craze. Virtually none of them knew the craze, okay? Such is the stupidity and the pride of people that many of them want to be associated with wicked people because they somehow think it, you know, it reflects on them, you know, the part of that network of gangsterism, yeah, I went to the craze funeral, it's just, it's a joke. Uh, those people don't give any thoughts at all to the victims of the thuggish behaviour, those innocent victims. Even in this city, even, even just round the corner from here, we've seen horse-drawn carriages transporting the coffins of gangsters. They spent their short lives being violent, threatening people. Now, they hate other violent people, you know, so I suppose people don't, don't have as much sympathy when they're sort of battering each other. You, you know what I mean? But a lot of the time, it's, it's, it's innocent people hurting them and threatening them and you think, how must the families around here feel? You know? I think they must feel betrayed to see all, all, these, all these people, you know, cheering, you know, oh, oh, so-and-so, what a hero he was. A hero, just because he was 
thug. So, it's almost, uh, well it is a scandal, wicked people have those honourable funerals. Often, far more elaborate than anything you and I can afford, folks. Um, and much of that is paid with the proceeds of crime anyway. So I'm saying that Cohella could be looking at this, these funerals that way. He's annoyed, perhaps, you know, it seems wrong. But we can look at the whole funeral thing in a different way. The wicked do get a proper burial, but they are dead. They are dead. Looking past the funeral event itself, we see, well, the wicked do die. The ones alive today, they're gone and gone. Maybe Kohelet's thinking, they used to do this and that, they used to walk around like they were respectable and the community loved them. But then I saw the wicked buried. Their careers of sin, whether short or long, they come to an end. No amount of power or influence or wealth can prolong their lives for one day. Man cannot escape death. There is an appointment. There is an appointment in the diary of every man and woman. There is an appointment in your diary, in my diary. And on that very day, the power of life will be extracted from that person and he will be gone. Imagine a young man who's suffering from, I don't know, maybe he's got involved in some cult or the sun, depression. Let's say he decides that he's going to end his life. He's only in his 20s. He decides to end his life early because he thinks that I'm not due to die for a long time yet. I'm going to, I'm going to bring it forward. I'm going to end it now. The sad, sad individual goes and takes his own life on the exact day appointed for him. Imagine a rich man, a rich man who, he's a billionaire, he employs experts, doctors, nutritionists uh, to keep him healthy. And then the experts tell him, your investment was very wise. We estimate that you have prolonged your life by 15 years. And, he, and he's so, he's, he's, oh, he feels as if he's temporarily avoided death, beaten it even. And he's there 95 years of age and, he, and, and then he dies to find that he's died on the exact day appointed by God. There's an appointment. And we see the wicked buried. We see them buried. All their threats have gone. All their rebellion against God ends. Their big blasphemous mouths are shut permanently. But we know that's not the end of the story. Some of them think, you know, that they'll get to escape. That when they die, they will, they will be an escape. They'll escape in the grave. They won't exist forevermore. To their horror, they'll discover that there is a resurrection. The dead from the whole of history will be reanimated 
for this purpose of trial. And the eternal destinies of every man and woman who's ever lived will be decided at this great judgment seat of God Almighty. It is the judgment. Now the Bible describes this in different ways. It uses, it shows you different scenes from the judgment. Now you're not to try to stitch them together to, to paint a picture of you know, how this judgment's going to play out. It wasn't meant for that. Each one was meant to show you a different aspect of how the judgment is, uh, if, if you like, justified by God. So, okay, you've got one scene, one example. People are immediately, they're resurrected, they're immediately divided into two groups. They're divided into two groups. You've got the sheep of God, and you've got the goats who are his enemies. The sheep and the goats. Jesus, the judge, he commands that all those goats, all those people, are dragged off. They're dragged off. They are committed to a place of banishment. And that forever they will be separated from all the blessings of God. And the reason given by him for that awful sentence is they never ministered to Christ. They never looked after him. They never saw to his needs. When Jesus needed them, they never fed him and clothed him and looked after him. And they say, well, they, they protest, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? When did we ever fail to minister to you? You weren't here. You were in heaven. How on earth did we fail to minister to you? And Jesus Christ replies that in neglecting the members of his church, that person neglected Christ himself. And in that neglect, they showed themselves to be false brethren. The true believer, you see, the true believer will spend their lives, their Christian lives, serving God's people. And because God's people are united to Christ, when we serve each other, in a way, we minister to Christ himself. When we do wrong to a brother or sister, we do wrong to Christ. When our commitment to the church is half-hearted, Christ sees our commitment to him as half-hearted. There's another scene, another example in the Bible where there's a crowd shouting, Lord, Lord, it's us. It's us. Uh, you remember us, don't you? And they tell the judge that uh, they're good Christian people. Lovely. Good Christian people. In case he's forgotten, they start to reel off. They start to remind him of the list of great things that they've done in the name of Jesus. They weren't just everyday Christians like us, brethren. These were... They, they perform miracles. Have you performed a miracle? They prophesy, they give you know, messages from heaven, directly from heaven. Have you done that? These were special Christians. They've done all these marvellous works for God. They tell him. And Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth, utterly 
rejects them. He said, now he uses a biblical word here which needs explaining. I never knew you. Means I never loved you. He'll say, you, you, you never belonged to me. I never loved you, not in life, not in death. Get away from me, you sinful creatures. Get away from me. And he commands his angel servants to take them away. Now those two scenes, friends, should be enough to give any sinner enough of a warning to repent while there's time. How hard-hearted must uh, a person be not to fear God? Knowing that that God has the power to cast them into this eternal place. This is why I keep saying that going around telling people that Jesus is their friend and he loves them and all the rest of it, it can't be classed as evangelism. They need warning. They need warning while they're still alive. They might be dead tonight. Don't send them to the bed telling them everything's fine, Jesus thinks I'm great. The love he has for the brethren and the Christians, he has for me. Hallelujah. Now I'll get on with my life. That is not evangelism, friends. We tell them that life is short. We tell them the scriptures which say it's appointed for them, like everyone else, to die. And after that, a judgment. That's what we do in evangelism. Here's my last point. It's that the righteous die. So the wicked die, but the righteous die as well. Who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? Well, in the Bible, people who are kind and they're honest are often said to be righteous. So if I ask people to just make a list of ten, the ten best qualities in a human that you'd like to see, and if everyone followed them, you know, like be good to your neighbour, don't kill, don't kill people, you know, ten, ten good, ten good virtues, ten good qualities. If everyone on the planet lived by them, this world would be amazing. This world would be a, a quite a nice place to live. However, if you were to find the most righteous man or woman on the planet. If you held them up to God's standard, they would look positively evil in comparison. In other words, friends, what I'm saying is that man cannot, through sheer determination, come anywhere close to a standard which would please God. That's why we say salvation can't be earned. You cannot turn over a new leaf, live this righteous life, and then hope that God will see how good you are and therefore accept you. That's, that's just satanic, that way of thinking. So that brings us to another uh, use of the word righteous. Now, listen carefully, friends. When God delivers someone from their sin, When he delivers them, when he plucks them out, when he saves them, as we say, they are said to be given the righteousness of God. It's, it's given to them as a gift, and, and God will forever then declare that person are as righteous as Christ himself. 
God will forever declare that that person is as upright in heart as Christ himself. Who are these people? Who are the, the, the righteous? Who are they? They're people who come to the end of the line. People who have become sick of sin or people who have been trying to be accepted by God through being good and they've realised the futility of it. These are people who come to the end of the line. The world hasn't got what they need. They tried it. The world doesn't have it. They want a right relationship with God. And they found, these people found that simply by calling out to God, no words, calling out to God in prayer and saying, I give in, I surrender, I'm a sinner, I, I, I want to repent, I want to turn away from my sin, I, I believe Christ can, can save me. And those, for those people, the Holy Spirit came down into their souls and gave them that firm belief that Christ died for them. However, in the purposes of God, it's necessary that those people too will experience suffering in this life. And one by one, they too will drop off the edge of this existence. All will get to taste death. But Kohelet has something to greatly encourage them in this life. Verse 12 says, It will be well. It will be well with those who fear God. For you who belong to God, all will be well. You who, who, who every day seek to serve God, all will be well. For us, friends, the best is yet to come. No matter what fantastic days of fellowship you and I have had in this life, the best is yet to come. Because like the wicked, we too will be part of that great resurrection morning. We will face some kind of judgment. And we can't know, I've said, we can't know exactly the form of this judgment. But those images of judgment in the Bible are there for a reason, that they're to teach us something. Now I've already mentioned the judgment of the wicked. The Bible tells us it's no good standing at the judgment uh, telling God about all the great stuff that you've done for him. It will be no good to present yourself before the judge of the earth and try to convince him you're a genuine Christian when you haven't even showed love to the brethren. And there are other things we can learn. But <clears throat> we too can learn from the scriptures that when we appear at the judgment, all will be well. All will be well for us. If Jesus was ever to thank us for showing kindness to him, if, if that could ever happen, we'd probably say, we haven't really done anything, Lord. And he'd say, well, you have. Because you showed love to the brethren, and I was watching you. And your love for the brethren showed so great that it showed that that person had the Holy Spirit in them all along. 
And if we were given the opportunity to speak, will we? I don't know. If we're given the opportunity to speak, we wouldn't say, Lord, Lord, we've done this for you, we've done that for you. We'd say, Lord, we stand here trusting in you, that you'll receive us into your everlasting paradise because of Christ alone. Because of his merits, because of his goodness, his righteousness given to us. So for those of you who understand, for those of you who understand that your acceptance with God is all because of the merits of Christ, all will be well for you. I don't know whether you notice, friends, that in verse 12, the ones for whom all will be well are those who fear God. Those who fear God. <clears throat> do, do you fear God, friends? Do you fear him? Or would you say, no, I don't fear him anymore. I love him. Let's look at that. Well, I don't know where you folks stand with God, as you know. I mean, the Bible has some marks of a Christian, right? So... Like just like you, I, I, I take those and I, I hold them up. And so when I meet people, I'm looking for these evidences or lack of them maybe to give me an idea. And so all we can do is that the, the more Christ-like the person appears to be, the more inclined I am to think that I believe it. And that's how we make our judgments. We say, oh, I'm absolutely sure she is a believer. Or you might say, well, she says she's a Christian, but I don't know. You make, you make those judgments. But to anyone here listening to this message on the internet or here today, who are outside of God's kingdom now, you are definitely, definitely supposed to fear God. And the fear that you should have is extreme. It's of an extreme type. If someone today was someone powerful was hunting you down in order to kill you and you knew that was the case well you'd experience fear of a most horrible dreadful kind but the threat from God is far worse yes fear him you may come to church you may listen to sermons and say your prayers at home and you may be happy to sing your favourite hymns. But if you are outside God's family today, it would be quite proper for you to think of God as someone who's coming after you. Whatever your appointed day is, that, that dreadful day when he lays his hands on you, there will be no second chances, as some say. He won't let you off. And you know what comes after that. But for those of you who are citizens of God's kingdom, who do have the Spirit, who are disciples of Christ today, the fear that you're meant to have is entirely different. God remains just as holy and as powerful as when you didn't know him. But, you know, we have to remember, he might give us, he might, he might allow us to witness him pouring out his fury on the heads of all those proud and godless masses of people. It's 
It's not going to be some Sunday school picnic, friends. Terrifying scene. But it means for us today, we serve the same God and we should have that respectful fear of God because of who he is and because he's what he's capable of. We should have a respectful fear of him to, to prompt us to avoid temptation as well. But the fear we have is not because God is out to destroy us. He will never destroy us. If you belong to God, he will never, ever destroy you. You see, God the Holy Spirit has tracked us down, if you like, he has hunted us down, but he laid his hand on us for good, not for harm, for good. And he created this brand new, lovely, relationship between us and him. So the fear we have now, you might think of it as that which a child has for his father. He's completely sure of his father's love for him, no doubt about that. But he never forgets his father. He's still a powerful figure. He can still inflict punishment, even if it's in love. Another picture which made sense to me might not help you. I was thinking about the sea. I was thinking about the sea. I've told you before, perhaps, that I like to stand. Uh, I like to stand and watch the waves crashing. You know, and the, really, the more violent they are and stormy, the better. The more excited is. Uh, maybe there's something wrong with me. But I love. I love to watch the, the, the waves crashing over, and, and 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 in a way, the sea, like the rest of creation, it was made by God, and so in its own way, that sea glorifies God. Now, I love the sea. You get what I'm at. I love the sea, but I fear it at the same time. Because if I jumped in, I, I wouldn't last long. So for us, us who have both a love and a fear, and a fear of our Father in heaven, all will be well. All will be well. We are going to die, friends. But at the return of Christ, we shall be made alive. And we shall see him, it says, truly as he is. How? How can we see him as he is? Because in that very moment, we shall be like him. We shall be of the same kind as him. And the outcome of our judgment has already been decided. A future of unparalleled delights awaits us. Let me finish with Psalm 37. Verses 10 and 11. In just a short while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek, believers, the meek shall inherit the land and shall delight themselves in abundant peace. 